This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant, celebrating the Fall Triduum, Halloween, All Saints, and All Souls, 2023. <laughs> Do you think that you've ever seen a ghost for real? Mm, no. No. But I have this memory when I was a little girl. I remember, and, and this is where I don't know if I saw this or if I really am seeing a memory that or I think I saw something. I don't know. I remember my sister yelling, and it woke me up, and the door was open to the room that we were staying in, and I remember there being one of those, those just a, a bald light bulb, I mean, it's just a light bulb with no shade. The light came on, and there was my sister screaming, and a shadow moving through that light, and then gone. And the adults came running up because my sister was just screaming. And my reaction as a little girl was, I'm just going to roll over and just go to bed. I'm not even going to think about this at all. I'm just going to go to bed. In his fairy and folk tales of the Irish peasantry, William Butler Yeats observed that the bodies of saints are fastidious things. At a place called Four Mile Water in Wexford, there is an old graveyard full of saints. Once it was on the other side of the river, but they buried a rogue there, and the whole graveyard moved across in the night, leaving the rogue corpse in solitude. It would have been easier to move merely the rogue corpse, Yates admitted, but they were saints and had to do things in style. In Acadiana, in South Louisiana, down among the cane fields in St. Landry Parish, at the junction of two bayous, Bayou Teche, Bayou Fusilier, in the tiny town of Arnoville, in a simple, stately mausoleum in St. Francis Regis Cemetery, rest the mortal remains of, by all accounts, a good and holy man, and quite possibly a saint, Auguste Pelafigue, nonco, as he was and is still known, a nickname. Uncle O, in Cajun French. His grandnephew, Mr. Willie Weibel, in charge of maintenance at St. Francis Regis Catholic Church across the street, told me he has no doubt Nonko is a saint, and that one day the church will declare him such. Why? Because he saw Nonko with his own eyes, even though Mr. Willie admitted, with a smile, he's not much of a saint himself and sometimes wonders how much time he'd get in purgatory for strangling someone. Mr. Willie's grandmother was Nonko's eldest sister, and in 1889, when she was eight and Nonko only a year old, their family emigrated to Arnoville from Boussance in distant France. Nonko trained as a teacher and for many years followed this vocation in the public and parochial schools of the area. He was known as a gifted catechist for organizing plays, pageants, and processions led by the children. And when I asked Mr. Willie if he ever took part in any of these celebrations, he rolled his eyes. Oh, yes, of course. 
and remembered for me the tongue and groove floor of the stage in the church auditorium, where Nunko would chalk out arrows, one color for this way, another color coming back, to get the children to follow his directions. Nonko was known as well for an intense and single-minded devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, never one to watch the game on Sunday or head to a barbecue, but would instead set out on foot with an umbrella to shield him from the sun or rain and with a small dog perched on his arm to promote the League of the Sacred Heart, cutting through the cane fields to visit those who needed visiting, to pray with them, to leave with them the leaflets of the League. When he visited, he would sit always on the porch, would only go inside in the worst of weather, and if he did, would never sit in a rocker or on a sofa, but only sit on the sofa's arm. Mr. Willie thought Nonko did this to keep from distraction, especially television. And on his visits, Nonko would always walk, even in bad weather. Even his old age took its inevitable toll. He saw it as a penance and offered it for the souls of the suffering dead. He was a humble man, living a life of charity and holy poverty. Whenever anyone began extolling his virtues, Nonko would start pigeoning, as Mr. Willie called it, making a trilling, cooing sound in the back of his throat, shake his head and start walking away, as if to say, no, no, not me, Jesus. He raised foul and used the money to help pay for the dues and leaflets of the league for those who couldn't afford the dollar fifty. In his small cabin was an ever-growing box of uncashed checks given over the years for as many good works as a teacher, as a catechist, as a man of God. And when asked what these were for, Nonko would say only, don't worry about it. Mr. Willie regrets when Nonko died, not being able to add up all that money to see what Nonko didn't take. In 1953, the pastor of St. Francis Regis was able to request for Nonko pontifical honors and subsequently a papal award diploma and medal were issued to him by the Bishop of Lafayette. The pastor, in justifying the distinction, had written, Mr. Pelafigue has organized the League of the Sacred Heart with some 1,200 members and 101 promoters. He goes out on foot to visit the fallen away, invites them to the prayer of the League, he teaches in the Catholic school, teaches catechism to the public school children, all out of the love of God, with no pay. He organizes religious programs for the encouragement of the weak and edification of the strong. He has been in this parish, another priest. He is most humble. He attends Holy Mass and receives Holy Communion daily. He assists at all the Masses on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. In a word, he is a living example of a real Christian. Nonko died on June 6, 1977, aged 89, on the Feast of the Sacred Heart. When I asked Father Travis Abadie, the current pastor of St. Francis Regis, why in the faith the communion of saints is of such importance, he said, Oh, that's the goal. 
It's a direct result of being a people of the resurrection. If we really believe in the resurrection, if we really believe that death is defeated, then those who belong to Christ, who have died in Christ and who live in Christ, are in many ways more alive than we are. And why are they alive? Why are they in Christ? Well, because they're a part of the communion of Christ. Why is anyone saved? Because we're a part of this body of Christ we call the church. It's just one plus one equals two here. We believe in the resurrection, and we believe we're saved by being part of this communion we call church. So it only makes sense this communion transcend over the valley of death, as it were. The saints, he continued, give us another incarnation of the gospel for the time in which they lived. We need those examples. It's not just nice to see. They're a necessary part of our education. And then we need to live this communion, this real communion that transcends death, that gives witness to what the final goal is. There's a reason why the communion of saints is one of the twelve articles of faith that someone has to believe in to be saved, that you explicitly have to believe. It's not an accident. When I asked Father Abadie how Nonko himself might contribute specifically to this necessary education, to the edification of the faithful in the wider world, outside Arnoville, he pointed out that, sadly, the Diocese of Lafayette was ground zero for the sexual abuse crisis in the American church, with the revelations surrounding Father Gilbert Gote in the early 1980s, the first American priest indicted for his abuse of children. In the wake of the crisis, the efforts of the church to protect young people, while absolutely necessary, can often have the unintended effect of establishing an unhealthy distance between adults and children based on fear and so adversely impacting the formation of the latter's faith. There needs to be a way, Father Abadie counseled, to very prudently, very chastely, but very lovingly, very gently serve our youth. Nonko lived that. And this is one thing his students constantly gave witness to. He didn't play favorites. He was never manipulative. Yet children were attracted to him. There was just something authentic about him, something that was very open to the spirit of a child, without breaking any bounds of propriety, yet very effective ministry to kids. I think that's an important witness we need today. The impact of this witness carries through to the present, for it's Nonko's many grandnephews, grandnieces, and former students who have led the push for his canonization. The Nonko Foundation, a predominantly lay organization, led the groundwork for the cause, advocating tirelessly for Nonko's heroic virtue and sanctity of life even drawing the attention of a postulator in Rome, all of this effort leading ultimately to the Bishop of Lafayette formally declaring Nonko's cause. Father Abadie also pointed out, in considering Nonko's special graces, that Nonko died at an advanced age in a nursing home. I don't know of too many saints who've been canonized, he said, who died in a nursing home. And yet I tell you, that population is one of the most overlooked, and there are saints there. 
so Nonko can give us a reminder of that and the witness, the dignity of the older person. Finally, Father Abadie reminded me that, unlike many other saints whose holiness flourished within a religious order or religious movement of the Church, Nonko's holiness was lived entirely within the life of a parish, in collaboration with his pastor, working as a catechist within the bounds of humble Arnoville, Louisiana. I've visited Arnoville twice now, once with my family and once alone. It's the sort of place where if you're out on the street, someone walking or even driving by will stop to introduce themselves and welcome you to town. My wife and I make a point of taking our children to such places, to the birthplace of St. Kateri in New York State, to the shrines of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Maryland or St. Mother Theodore Guerin in Indiana, to the grave of Father Stanley Rother, the martyr, here in Oklahoma. We want the children to know simply what's expected of them and to teach them possibly the greatest lesson for any American child in this, our troubled 21st century, that there are many highways and byways to follow along in this great land to destinations both good and bad, but that if they always travel on a pilgrim road, they'll surely find a shrine. In the mausoleum where Nonko's remains are interred, my children left wildflowers. One of my daughters left her favorite charm bracelet. My wife left a lock of her hair. We knelt together and prayed for Nonko's intercession. It was a beautiful day, and Father Abadie brought us all a stack of literature associated with Nonko's cause. When I returned to the cemetery, some years later, I was alone. As I walked the grounds, an old man in shorts and suspenders and his short sleeves rode back and forth along an adjacent road on his bicycle. In the distance, in the west, rain fell in a silent column from a swollen gray-blue cloud. The cemetery was not like any I'm used to, those well-manicured lawns and uniform rows of the dead one encounters elsewhere. Instead, an old-world cemetery, a Louisiana cemetery, a jumble of above-ground tombs of every shape and size, and because this is Acadiana, carved into the stone, names that sound like birdsong, Dunatilde, Ushariste, Philonaise, Elodie. On one marker, a simple phrase declaring the hope of us all, Un va se voir un jour, we'll meet again one day. All around me, young and old, rich and poor, men and women alike, the dead, and me among them, alive today, also born to die, but here, still, and wondering about the promise, the promise of resurrection, of this good and holy man who might be at this very moment, just imagine, offering words of praise before the throne of God. It often happens, as a cause advances, that the relics of the saint are disinterred 
and translated elsewhere. It happened here in Oklahoma, with blessed Stanley Rother taken from his grave in native soil, out there in Okarchi, on the prairie, and brought to Oklahoma City, first to the cathedral, and then to the shrine that bears his name. At present, there are no similar plans for Nanko, beyond perhaps moving his remains from the mausoleum to his own plot outside, purchased by the foundation, but still among the dead of that tiny town he loved so much. How appropriate that he could still journey with them, even in death. Mr. Willie told me he has no doubt Nonko is a saint, and that one day the church will declare him such. Why? Because he saw Nonko with his own eyes. But still, we cannot see what lies beyond the veil of death and what strange country these dead, young and old, rich and poor, men and women alike, reside. What strange country toward which we are all bound. On va se voir un jour. But if we could imagine, for imagination's sake, purgatory is somewhat like South Louisiana, only hotter. We might also imagine there those souls of the suffering church in their final purification, awaiting their deliverance, their entry into glory. Imagine, too, their surprise, then, as a kind old man steps into that fire, from out of the cane fields, as it were, carrying his umbrella, a small dog, in those innumerable leaflets with the promises of the Sacred Heart. And my friends, they'll hear him say, at last, I bring good news. We always pray for her. We always pray for the dead. And one day she was coming around the corner of the kitchen and she saw what she says, Judy's head in the family room. I don't know what exactly that looked like, but she saw Judy's head in the family room. And she, like, like, like head size? Or I have no, I, I would give anything to talk to my mom about this more. I don't know. <laughs> I always picture a giant head, <laughs> like, like the Wizard of Oz. Right. <laughs> So there was just my aunt's head, and my mom <laughs> took that as a sign. She knew that Judy was in heaven, that she didn't need to worry about her anymore. <laughs> One night, I dreamt I was walking down the dead-end road of my childhood home. In my dream, I'm walking down this road, and the sun is hot, is burning me. No matter how long I walk, I don't seem to be getting any closer to the house. I'm exhausted. I want to rest, but I can't get there. And then all at once, my heart is full of sorrow. I remember that my mother is dead and that even if I do make it home, she won't be there. I realize it's not just this road I have to walk. It's my whole life. I have to live my whole life before I get to see her again. When my mother was dying, I held her hand. By this time, she could no longer speak, could no longer speak twice over, once from the disease and once from the tubes in her throat that kept her breathing. My mother loved to talk. 
Her silence was the beginning of her separation from life. Because it was part of the illness, it happened long before the ventilator. It was a presence moving her away from me, and I hated it. This was July. Back in June, my husband drove us all, me and our six children, from Oklahoma to New Hampshire. We called it a visit, a trip, but really, it was a farewell, and we knew it. My mother knew it, too. I spent that week by her side in the mornings and left in the afternoons when she was too tired to stay awake. I brought Andy with me on these visits. He was four months old. She held him as long as she was able, smiling at him, stroking his head. He smiled back. I was glad she could meet him. When it came time to leave, I found I didn't have the courage to say those needful words like, I'll miss you. Forgive me. Please forgive me for moving so far away. I hugged her and hugged her again. Doing it a third time seemed too much because she was so tired, but I wanted to. I looked back at her one last time, and she was already looking away, looking down at her hands. Just before we left, I sat in the car thinking, she's in there, still alive. I'm here, still alive. I should go back inside one more time. Maybe she wants to see me one more time. I didn't, though. It was time to go home to take my children back home. Still, I couldn't stay away and booked a trip in July. I brought Andy with me. As I was boarding my flight, she was being admitted to the hospital. At first, I couldn't bring Andy in to see her while she remained on the ventilator. I said, why on earth can't she see her grandson? I've traveled all the way from Oklahoma and she's dying. I just want to see my mom. Why can't we just go in and see her? Because he's a baby, one of the nurses said, as if that was the piece of information I was confused about. Eventually, another nurse explained that it increased Andy's chance of sickness to be in the room while she was on the ventilator. I guess it's true, though it's hard to know these days what's science and what's policy. When I finally sat down beside her, I asked her to forgive me. I told her all the things I loved about our lives together. I talked about one Halloween several years before when my sister and I brought our children to her house to trick or treat. Halloween is my favorite holiday. And that Halloween night was gorgeous. It's never warm in New Hampshire on Halloween, but that night it was and there was a full moon with thin black clouds gliding past on a warm breeze. I remember seeing my mother's face in the full moonlight and saying, this is a perfect night. She smiled and said, it is. Being human and stuck in time hurts. I wish I could walk that night again. She was on the ventilator on Friday I saw her Saturday when the doctor said there was nothing more to be done. 
We waited for Sunday to remove her from the ventilator so that her sister could be there to say goodbye. It was her 51st wedding anniversary, and it seemed to all of us a fitting day for her to leave this earth because she and my father loved each other so much. It felt like her way of telling him how much he meant to her. Small doses of medicine were administered to keep her calm as she starved for air. The only priest we could find to be with us was a Franciscan. My mother loved St. Francis. My aunt brought her face close to my mother's face. She whispered to her, and for a moment, I felt like I was seeing them as they must have looked when they were children together all those years ago. My sister wept and kissed her forehead. My father kissed her hand and said, Cheryl, it's me. It's our wedding anniversary. I'm your husband, and I love you. She died in less than an hour, and we talked over her body about the day we drove up Mount Washington, my aunt behind the wheel trying not to panic as the car cut through a thick fog. At one point, we almost drove off the edge. At least that's how we all remember it. And we always tell it that way because it makes us laugh. I never dared hope to be there when my mother passed away. I never even thought of asking God for that grace. And yet, he gave it to me all the same. We left her body and met with other family who were waiting outside. My sister decided to return to the room because she wanted to climb into the bed and be close to our mother one last time. I thought it was a beautiful impulse and let her go alone. I guess even though we're older, in some fashion, we always remain children. As we approach all souls, we pray for our loved ones who have passed, that they may rest eternally in God's goodness. But let us pray too for those who have no one to pray for them. My heart is restless until it rests in you, O Lord. Kazik kind of into that stuff. He brought in some psychics to come and, and find the ghosts of the theater because every old theater has ghosts, right? And has stories and history. And What could go wrong? Yes. So he brought in these psychics. And I do remember one detail. They they discovered the heart of the theater where like all of the, the haunting and energy came from. But anyway, I was working there late by myself. I mean, it was like three in the morning, two in the morning, somewhere around there and just being exhausted and printing this stuff out. I had to get this stuff done and wanting to go home. And all of a sudden I remembered the heart of the theater and it was my office where I was under the balcony stairs. The Witch of Coos, a poem by Robert Frost. I stayed the night for shelter at a farm behind the mountain with a mother and son, two old believers. They did all the talking. And the mother says, Folks think a witch who has familiar spirits she could call up to pass a winter evening but won't should be burned at the stake or something. Summoning spirits isn't button, button, who's got the button, I would have them know. And the son, he's about 40 years old. Mother can make a common table rear and kick with two legs like an army mule. 
and she says, And when I've done it, what good have I done? Rather than tip a table for you, let me tell you what Rawl, the Sioux Control, once told me. He said the dead had souls. But when I asked him how could that be, I thought the dead were souls. He broke my trance. Don't that make you suspicious that there's something the dead are keeping back? Yes, there's something the dead are keeping back. The son says, You wouldn't want to tell him what we have up attic, mother. Bones, a skeleton. But the headboard of mother's bed is pushed against the attic door. The door is nailed. It's harmless. Mother hears it in the night, halting, perplexed behind the barrier of door and headboard. Where it wants to get is back into the cellar, where it came from. We'll never let them, will we, son? We'll never. It left the cellar forty years ago, he says, and carried itself like a pile of dishes up one flight from the cellar to the kitchen, another from the kitchen to the bedroom, another from the bedroom to the attic, right past both father and mother, and neither stopped it. Father had gone upstairs. Mother was downstairs. I was a baby. I don't know where I was. And she says, The only fault my husband found with me, I went to sleep before I went to bed, especially in winter, when the bed might just as well be ice and the clothes snow. The night the bones came up the cellar stairs, Toffel had gone to bed alone and left me, but left an open door to cool the room off so as to sort of turn me out of it. I was just coming to myself enough to wonder where the cold was coming from, when I heard Toffel upstairs in the bedroom and thought I heard him downstairs in the cellar. The board we had laid down to walk dry shod on when there was water in the cellar in spring struck the hard cellar bottom. And then someone began the stairs, two footsteps for each step, the way a man with one leg and a crutch or a little child comes up. It wasn't Toffel. It wasn't anyone who could be there. The bulkhead double doors were double locked and swollen tight and buried under snow. The cellar windows were banked up with sawdust and swollen tight and buried under snow. It was the bones. I knew them, and good reason. My first impulse was to get to the knob and hold the door, but the bones didn't try the door. They halted helpless on the landing waiting for things to happen in their favor. The faintest, restless rustling ran all through them. I never could have done the thing I did if the wish hadn't been too strong in me to see how they were mounted for this walk. I had a vision of them put together, not like a man, but like a chandelier. So suddenly I flung the door wide on him. A moment he stood balancing with emotion and all but lost himself. A tongue of fire flashed out and licked along his upper teeth. Smoke rolled inside the sockets of his eyes. Then he came at me with one hand outstretched, the way he did in life once. But this time, I struck the hand off brittle on the floor and fell back from him on the floor myself. The finger pieces slid in all directions. 
Where did I see one of those pieces lately? Hand me my button box. It must be there. I sat up on the floor and shouted, Toffle, it's coming up to you. It had its choice of the door to the cellar or the hall. It took the hall door for the novelty and set off briskly for so slow a thing, still going every which way in the joints, though, so that it looked like lightning or a scribble from the slap I had just now given its hand. I listened till it almost climbed the stairs from the hall to the only finished bedroom before I got up to do anything, then ran and shouted, Shut the bedroom door, Toffle, for my sake. Company, he said. Don't make me get up. I'm too warm in bed. So lying forward weakly on the handrail, I pushed myself upstairs. And in the light, the kitchen had been dark. I had to own I could see nothing. Toffle, I don't see it. It's with us in the room, though. It's the bones. What bones? The cellar bones. Out of the grave. That made him throw his bare legs out of bed and sit up by me and take hold of me. I wanted to put out the light and see if I could see it, or else mow the room with our arms at the level of our knees and bring the chalk pile down. I'll tell you what. It's looking for another door to try. The uncommonly deep snow has made him think of his old song, The Wild Colonial Boy. He always used to sing along the tote road. He's after an open door to get outdoors. Let's trap him with an open door up attic. Toffel agreed to that, and sure enough, almost the moment he was given an opening, the steps began to climb the attic stairs. I heard them. Toffel didn't seem to hear them. Quick! I slammed to the door and held the knob. Toffel, get nails! I made him nail the door shut and push the headboard of the bed against it. Then we asked, was there anything up attic that we'd ever want again? The attic was less to us than the cellar. If the bones liked the attic, let them have it. Let them stay in the attic. When they sometimes come down the stairs at night and stand perplexed behind the door and headboard of the bed, brushing their chalky skull with chalky fingers, it sounds like the dry rattling of a shutter. That's what I sit up in the dark to say. To no one anymore, since Toffle died. Let them stay in the attic since they went there. I promised Toffle to be cruel to them, for helping them be cruel once to him. And the son says, We think they had a grave down in the cellar. And she says, we know they had a grave down in the cellar. And he says, We never could find out whose bones they were. And she says, Yes, we could too, son. Tell the truth for once. They were a man's his father killed for me. I mean a man he killed instead of me. The least I could do was help dig their grave. We were about it one night in the cellar. Son knows the story. It was not for him to tell the truth, suppose the time had come. Son looks surprised to see me end a lie we'd kept up all these years between ourselves, so as to have it ready for outsiders. But tonight I don't care enough to lie. I don't remember why I ever cared. Toffle, 
If he were here, I don't believe could tell you why he ever cared himself. She hadn't found the finger bone she wanted among the buttons poured out in her lap. I verified the name next morning, Toffel. The rural letterbox said, Toffel Lajway. Be calm and not freak out. I had to turn off all the lights, turn off my computer, everything, and walk out of that theater. But the thing about that theater and where my office was is I had to walk, you know, through the hallway that leads to the balcony steps and then down those steps. And in, in looking out into this space, it's so creepy to be in an old theater by yourself that's meant to be filled with people. Yeah. It's just, a mm-hmm. especially late at night. I want to get out of here right now. I am not interested in the hearts of this theater. When my husband and I were living on the Gulf, we met these older ladies who had a particular devotion to St. Jean Jugon. They were just the loveliest women, and they told us stories about Jean, how she swore off marriage to devote her life to Christ, how she spent years serving the poor, but that it wasn't until she was 47 years old that she found her true calling, a blind elderly woman in the freezing cold with no place to stay. Of course, to Jean, the woman was Jesus. Jean carried the woman home on her back and gave up her own bed so that this woman could finally rest. That moment of charity grew to become the little sisters of the poor. It was John's great work. As the order grew, a priest took credit for John's work and out of jealousy, kept her from serving the poor. In her hiddenness, exiled to the mother house of the order, John came into direct contact with all the novices, likely helping shape each one of them to follow Christ completely. So God works even through crooked deeds. They knew my husband was a songwriter and suggested he write a song about her. So he did. And they hated it. They hated the poetry of it. There's a line, Jean says, Jesus, Lord, my lover, keep me a widow for your works unknown. They took issue with the word widow because Jean Jugon never married. Of course, he was playing with the idea that Jean was a bride of Christ, Christ both crucified and Christ resurrected. Because the line continues, save my hand for Sunday morning. It was a great disappointment. He respected those ladies and wanted so much to delight them. Through the years, my husband and I, we have taken a master class in rejection and humiliation. They are excellent teachers. We are grateful to those beautiful ladies who introduced us to St. Jean Jugon. We are grateful for rejection. And we offer this song to Jean. Perhaps it was only meant for her anyway. Jean says, Jesus, Lord, my lover, keep me a widow for your works unknown. Save my hand for Sunday morning, beggar for your passion's fate. Lady of the orchard, your mother 
This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant. Produced and directed by Brian and Rachel Kennedy. Produced and engineered by Jonathan Hunt. For show notes and more information on how to support our work, please visit our website at lidwinejournal.org.